typically when you see you know something that's non-standard i think instead of kind of turning away or rejecting it really trying to understand or embrace it is important welcome to the off record podcast with your host Corey levy where we uncover the hidden behind the scenes thoughts and actions of successful people today we speak to entrepreneur and investor kevin hartz who's well known for co-founding the leading global self-ticketing platform eventbrite and is currently a partner at early stage venture capital firm founders fund in this week's episode, Kevin talks about how he got started as a 26-year-old founder. He gives advice on how to connect with brilliant people. He tells us the moment he knew he was up to something big. And he explains the best way to attract and retain talent and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining on the show today. I want to start by asking, how did you become an entrepreneur and then now venture capitalist? Hi, Corey. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I really got involved as being a founder of a company. One is I kind of joked that I was unemployable, that I really just didn't want a conventional job. And the notion of starting my own company and being my own boss was especially alluring. And it was something that even in college, I had my own business. And what were your college days like? You know, college for me was a period of exploration. Did not know I was going to be focused on tech, but I did know I wanted to do something that was impactful for the world. College for me was a chance to learn quite a bit, to take a diverse set of courses, but also meet people that were, you know, absolutely brilliant and interesting and non-conventional thinkers. And all this had a big influence. My work unfolded. This all came back to be extremely impactful in the businesses I built and the ventures that I was involved in. I'd say it all emanated uh, a lot from college. And what was the first thing you did when you left college? When I left college, I went to Stanford. I was a Stanford undergrad and I kind of taken this broad range of courses and wanted to focus a bit. So I went overseas and got a master's in British history at Oxford in George III. So something totally kind of off the reservation in terms of having any bearing on tech, but it was an opportunity to kind of learn how to learn. It was a kind of deep intellectual pursuit and glad I had that kind of interesting balance to my life. Did you ever have a job before that? And what was that like with your first company that you started? Well, my first job was at a company called Silicon Graphics SGI, which in its day was kind of the like the giant behemoth market leader in graphics workstations. And I was the product manager for, so my first job was in product, and I was a product manager for this VRML, which was virtual reality markup language, open language. It's kind of like HTML for immersive spaces. And it was interesting because I think it was insanely far ahead of its time. You know, the, the notion of Snow Crash, you know, the science fiction novel was there moving through spaces and cyberspace versus flat web pages, but just far ahead of its time. But it was an opportunity for me to work with some unique and really interesting, brilliant engineers and really kind of dip my feet into technology. It was, you know, in hindsight, I just kind of felt this necessity to have like two years of product management under my belt. In hindsight, I think there would, I would have started my businesses sooner. How did you start Eventbrite? How did you meet your wife? Did you start the company when y'all were dating, engaged, married, prior to dating? What was that like? Eventbrite was founded in 2006, early 2006, late 2005 by Julia, my then fiance, Renaud Visage, our CTO, and myself. And, you know, we had this thesis of ticketing was fundamentally broken, that transactional businesses were very powerful on the web, and we could, in effect, bring a better ticketing solution to market, but not just for the kind of Taylor Swift's and for the NFL events, but really for everything, kind of the long tail or the everything under the pyramid beneath 
that. And so we built this self-service ticketing platform and just bootstrapped it for the first two years. We just put in our own money. We didn't take salaries. I had the good fortune to have been invested using the proceeds of my first startup, Connect Group, was acquired, put that money into PayPal, and with those proceeds, was able to kind of bootstrap, bootstrap Eventbrite along. And what were those first two years like? Was there a particular moment in time that you remember where you're like, wow, this is going to be really big? You know, I think we especially felt that this was initially not going to be very big. And we wanted to kind of see if we could just grow it as a profitable cash flow business because we weren't sure of the size and magnitude. I think we were being kind of conservative and attacking sort of a smaller market first. And then as we really hit a certain inflection point and the business took off, it really just opened my eyes and our eyes of how broad and massive the opportunity actually was. And that was a very exciting moment that we had something much larger than we anticipated underneath us. When was that and what was that inflection point? You know, interesting, I would say it was midway through 2009. It was the financial recession hit hard. You know, markets had crashed. All startup funding had stopped. And we were not so sure what was going to happen. And we were hunkering down. And at this time, we were a small company growing into a massive space. And so even though there was this like disaster of the economy out there, the high unemployment rates, big layoffs, and so on, we were inflecting and growing at a kind of hyper pace. And that really gave us kind of conviction in the business that there was something here. And that was really capped off at the end of 2009 with Sequoia Capital Ruloff Botha leading our Series A. After the Series A was complete, was there a point in time from 2009, I guess, until today where there were some oh shit moments? And if so, what were those? You know, now that I've moved into the chairman role and I'm over at Founders Fund, I kind of noticed that you have these oh shit moments every day. You kind of wake up and there's something wrong. Well, I kind of felt that day in and day out. But stepping outside of it gave me good perspective. And Julia, my co-founder, who also happens to be my wife, has those oh shit moments every morning <laughs> that we discuss. And she's she handles it extremely well. But I think that's it's just the nature of a company and nature of a company at our size and scale that just crazy things are always happening. Specifically, though, there were times where we had massive fraud attacks, uh, where fraudsters were trying to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars. We had very aggressive lawsuits by competitors. We had just a myriad of things. So it was a roller coaster ride, you know, to say the least, but I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was an exciting time. And each new stage of the company just kind of brought a new chapter. It was it was like a, a kind of novel unfolding with a, a unique experience at every turn. How did your job change through those turns? As the three of us, we were just completely hands-on, but you kind of set the pace and culture and style and fundamental basis of the company in those early days. And then as we grew, my job really became talent acquisition. That's, you know, always more than half of my time was spent recruiting and finding great people. That was a big part of it. And when you find the right people to get into the right position, you can really, I think the really rewarding feeling is seeing this talent take, you know, this this notion or this early idea of what you've built and bring it so much farther than you can ever imagine. And that's kind of the thrill of what I feel today when I think about or get updates from Eventbrite and see the great progress they're making. It's been pushing into new countries, expanding into Latin America, moving into Germany. It's been offering new products like self-service reserve seating. And all these have just been kind of new factors or kind of big changes I've 
seen. But again, I'd bring it back to talent. It centers around finding the right people at the right stage of the business to help ramp that business and grow it, keep the hyper growth going. In terms of finding talent, that's often a big challenge people have. What are some of the tactics that you use to find untapped talent? I always talk about talent as as a competitive advantage, just as Eventbrite has certain competitive advantages in terms of how we acquire users or, or deter fraud through clever engineering. We also have a competitive advantage of how we find great talent. And I think all, if you look at history of the best companies, they've had their competitive advantages or the monopolistic advantages, but they also had extremely unique mechanisms of hiring. So, you know, this is an age old example, but Microsoft kind of revolutionary at the time to hire engineers, software engineers straight out of college. And by focusing on super bright, young talent coming right out of college, that was, in effect, a competitive hiring advantage that they had over all the incumbents out in the market that were looking for people with 20 years experience and so on. Um, So hiring can be that really special competitive advantage. Where Founders Fund, we're investors in SpaceX. SpaceX has an unfair competitive advantage in hiring because it's recruiting aerospace engineers and the default is to go to a you know orbital sciences or Lockheed or NASA or so on to these incumbent lumbering aerospace companies and in effect it could develop a talent monopoly and on the Elon Musk topic Tesla very much in the same way could recruit automotive engineers so when you're building a business you really want to think about like what special advantage can I bring can I have that will give me an uneven playing field to hire and retain the best talent. And as you were building Eventbrite, did you have any go-to mentors? Mentorship is always very important to me. It was, I think, in each stage, I also found different mentors, whether around the growth stage or whether around just, say, general advice from, say, Peter Thiel or, you know, Sequoia was particularly helpful, Roloff. And I think that's important that, you know, a company, especially at the startup stages, has limited resources and one needs perspective. And so having, surrounding yourself by people, we had a great board member who's recently left to join Spotify as their CFO, Barry McCarthy who was the original Netflix CFO. He was somebody that really gave me great insights on operations and really instrumenting the business right, what metrics to track and so on. So I've been lucky to have be surrounded by great mentors. I had a great CEO coach, Sean Moriarty, the former CEO of Ticketmaster. And so as I think back at every step of the way, having just somebody to have a late night conversation with to help was really great. And then there's the peer side of this as well, meaning we always shared offices until we got really big. We always shared offices with other startups. Our first office we shared with a company called Flickster, uh, which was acquired by Warner Brothers, and a company called TripIt, which was acquired by Concor. And even Zynga, Mark Pincus had his first office in the office that we had. Trulia was downstairs from us. So we always had these really great founders around us. We even moved in with Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft for a billion dollars and shared offices with Yammer. So having talent around, you know, this is now done formally with programs like Y Combinator, having this you know talent that you can share best practices with. But I think just having other founder founder CEOs to share ideas with is really critical. What were some of the things you've learned from Peter Thiel? 
Peter has always challenged me on conventional thinking. I think that we can always be in this mode of kind of going with the flow and not even realizing it, realizing that there are other realities out there. And I think Peter, in any conversation, always has a provocative, unconventional view of the world. I got to know him through student politics. And this is where I point out I was chair of the Stanford Democrats. And he was, of course, founder of the Stanford Review and head of the Republicans. And while I didn't agree with his political views, having some Somebody with a different thought to challenge and provoke your thinking always helped me on many different aspects. What about Roloff? What have you learned most from him? Roloff has just been, he's absolutely brilliant. He's an actuary by training, so just brilliant on the numbers. He's very observational of the world, and he's able to take a lot of the practices, even the, his period as CFO in bringing PayPal to public as an operator at age 26, him being the first investor, the first institutional investor in YouTube, he's able to bring a lot of great operating insights and thoughts and always adds to the board meeting or to the one-on-one. You've invested and advised you know, super successful startups like Airbnb and PayPal and Pinterest. Do you have any stories either firsthand or secondhand about controversy? I, I just always remember seeing Brian, Nate, and Joe a few days after they had been heads down battling a number of years back in the early days. There was a some like meth head drug users had trashed one of the apartments. It had made national news. It was causing a lot of unrest amongst the team in the community. And they, instead of surrendering or instead of kind of falling by the wayside, as I would imagine, this would have been a defining moment and challenging moment for any company. They really rose to the occasion. And I saw them a few days after they'd been through something like a 72 hour, like no sleep, you know, just all hands on deck responding and fixing this problem. And this was these moments always define companies. And I think this is one of these definitive moments that was very clear that this team wasn't going to surrender. They were going to win, you know, win at all costs, but win in the right way. They did right by the host. They changed their policies and they did this at lightning speed and they learned from that. And, you know, so that's an area where people, I think, were really disarmed, upended this concern of having strangers stay in your home and and really help solidify and, and start this Airbnb brand. How do you think entrepreneurs should deal with controversy? Do you think shy away from it, seek it, or just not back away when it comes up? I tend to address things straight on. And, you know, generally controversy is everything in tech by nature that is controversial is probably worth double clicking on. It was very controversial, for example, when Founders Fund, this was before my time, but I think it was 2007, invested in SpaceX after two rockets had blown up and the fund had, instead of kind of shying away from controversy and the fire of the LPs coming after them for investing in this crazy space company, they had kind of run towards this controversy. So typically when you see you know something that's non-standard, I think instead of kind of turning away or rejecting it, really trying to understand or embrace it is important. What's something controversial today that you think will be commonplace tomorrow? We have a program called Pathfinder, which is our angel investment fund, a founders fund. And, and we wrote a $250,000 check last year in a company called Grabber, G-R-A-B-R. And that company is a business that is a logistics commerce delivery business, but it uses travelers to deliver goods. And that's an incredibly controversial notion because it sounds like trafficking. You know, So when I hear the first response out of people's mouth, 
else out of describing the business to them. They say illegal, illegal trafficking. Is this some kind of front for drugs? Usually this kind of controversy often see before something blows out in the mainstream when in fact this business is just really taking what's happened for a long time. And that's that when people travel to different countries or that travel back to their home countries, they bring goods from the West that are very hard or very scarce. You know, for example, a an iPhone costs 3x the amount it does in Brazil than it does in the United States or just some certain goods that are hard to find overseas can be readily brought. And, and this is an action that's been done for decades, travelers bringing goods. So even talking about this, I think, gives probably the listener some pause and concern about it. And I find that exciting. When looking to back certain founders, do you have a rubric or what do some great founders have in common? I often ask about family backgrounds. You have to remember this is not interviewing for jobs. This is for raising money. And so you can kind of go interestingly deep into backgrounds. And I often find that best entrepreneurs grew up in families where there was quite a bit of kind of intellectual stimulation and competition. So competition among siblings, intellectual stimulation, meaning like oftentimes you'll find that the parents, the mother or the father were professors or scientists or researchers. And then there's this this willingness that they've often overcome some type of very challenging obstacle to get where they have, that they've been able to perform and do extraordinary things, not necessarily building a company yet, but have shown extraordinary achievements before even at, at a very young age. And, and so I look very carefully at the backgrounds of the founders to understand what really motivates them, that they're going to really want to win, and that they have the intellectual capacity to make the right decisions to get to that to those goals. What would your advice be to young people trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives? My own experience, I didn't know from day one that I was, I, I wasn't born thinking, oh, I want to be a founder. I had to really find my way there. And so, you know, this notion of failing fast, meaning trying lots of things. So you may be, you may find it's music, you may find it's art, you may find it's in the nonprofit sector, but find what really you're passionate about. Think big. You know, I, I really think in terms of what are things that can really have a positive impact on the planet and make society a better place and then use whatever special skills you feel you're developing or have um, to achieve that. But try a lot of things and find the right path. The other side is just be careful. The allure is to follow the conventional path. So we often talk at Founders Fund around this. Perhaps in my parents' generation, the pressure and the conventional path was to be a lawyer or a doctor. You know, my generation was to be an investment banker or a consultant. And interestingly and contradictorily, I'll say that feels like path, the safe path is to be a founder. And so you have, I would say, or a lot of tourists that are starting companies because it's actually perceived as a resume builder or the cool path to take that they've watched the social network one too many times when in fact, inward search to find what really motivates you to do great things and applying your own talents is, is what should usurp all other kind of outside external pressures. Do you think it's 100% necessary to go to college? Uh, absolutely not. I, I mean, I question college more and more, not because I'm a founder's fund, but just because, you know, it's somewhat of a treadmill where, you know, students are trained at an early age and follow again, just to this earlier point, this very conventional path of getting good grades, scoring high, doing extracurriculars, volunteering, you know, like getting all these badges on their resumes to get into college and to get on this track. Now, college, in my experience at Stanford, was wonderful because I created relationships that have helped me for a lifetime. That I helped me challenge me in critically thinking. 
but it's not necessarily right for everyone. Founders Fund is a limited partner in, in an investor meeting in Laura Deming's fund, and she is a dropout from MIT. And she just knew, you know, from a very young age, actually at maybe age 11 or 12, that she wanted to be in life sciences and is now an investor in this at, at the ripe age of 23. So in the case of Laura, you know, she knew very early on that, you know, two more years of classes at MIT really didn't have any really great bearing or need on the future and that getting started sooner on her path is there. But I think, you know, the kind of mixed feelings about college in the one sense, the university system, again, teaches you how to think, not necessarily just what to learn, but how to learn. But on the other hand, you know, you can rack up a lot of debt and come out, you know, just as kind of unknowing as, as when you started. Are there any other conventional paths or tracks that you question or argue about with with your with your network? I mean, I think all the conventional tracks are generally the ones that your parents urge you to go on. So my theory of like, and sorry to all those parents out there, is uh, not to listen to your parents or do exactly opposite because parents have this need to protect their children. It's this innate need. And what happens is that you want your children to go on a safe path. So, you know, my parents' perception was that being a doctor or a lawyer was a safe path or banker or management consultant. And so they recoiled and were adamantly against every startup I began. They thought it was crazy. They thought I was throwing my life away. And that actually gave me conviction that I had made the right choice. And in fact, when I joined Founders Fund, my parents had a similar reaction. That was, again, an affirmation that, that the right choice was made. That's funny. I read a story in high school, you were suspended. Do you want to talk about that? Of course. I think most are probably not proud of being suspended. But uh, in high school, I was suspended for five days for sending out a letter to all the students that the school would be closed for an asbestos cleanup that happened to coincide with our senior cut day. I don't recommend this to those out there. I have to give some type of disclaimer not to follow this behavior. But we created this letter and I forged the principal's signature and sent it through the U.S. Postal System, which I got a very stern warning from the Postmistress General and that I could face federal charges for an unauthorized use of the mail system. But it was a lot of fun. But none of the seniors showed up that day. We coordinated it. the asbestos closing day with the senior cut day. It was uh, mass chaos. I confessed and, and got suspended. It's uh, something I kind of, I don't know, look back at and with amusement. Were there other things growing up that you did uh, your parents may have not been so happy about? Yeah, I generally think that I had a lot of fun playing practical jokes on my parents, and I still do. And I think that just, I don't know, it, it makes things more interesting. How do you make hard decisions? Do you have any tactics? I think there's a few kind of mechanisms in making hard decisions. I like the notion of not kind of holding off. This is somewhat of an Amazonian notion of waiting to the last possible minute to or moment to make a decision, gives you further information. Depending on what it is, there's certain people that I trust that can give me different perspective or advice. And I think when, you know, if this is relating to, you know, say students who are making a life decision, career decision, gathering as much data as possible is important. And that means reaching out and talking to a lot of different people that would be experienced in that area. And do you have any routines 
morning, afternoon, or evening routines? I try to keep life very simple, you know, wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I lay out the night before, getting up at the same time, trying to stay at inbox zero, using a lot of different software to try to organize my life to really what I want to do is is this, and Ben Silverman from Pinterest teased me about this because I told him to do this and he thought it was kind of ludicrous. And that's outsource all your non-core competencies. So if there are things like my core competency is not doing dry cleaning or going to the grocery store. So if I can outsource those and have those taken care of by somebody else, but that applies in, in every day and focus my attention on kind of what I do best, you know, and maximizing my time about around either building Eventbrite or the work I do here at Founders Fund or spending time with my family. That's where I want to kind of maximize my time. What are uh, some of your biggest challenges right now? From a Founders Fund perspective, it's finding the next Facebook or Google. <laughs> so no small task, but really looking for that next great extraordinary founder or founders that are doing something really special and magical. And the challenge is it won't look like Facebook or Google. It'll look like something completely different. And that's actually what drew me to Founders Fund is just this sense to look where others have kind of not considered in Founders Fund history and track record really shows that. What are some ineffective things you see founders wasting their time doing? Most importantly, it's kind of a macro theme. It's not like on what they're doing day to day. It's what they've chosen to do. What's really frustrating is seeing, again, this conventional path, bright, talented founders starting companies that are in extremely crowded markets, that there are already dozens of competitors, that it's just another Me Too company. And there's so much innovation and change that is needed in the world. And so I get extremely frustrated when somebody is not really tackling a problem that really matches is their intellect and skill. I would say I would point to really assessing if you're really going to take it as the old expression goes, if you're going to start a company, it's just as hard to start a small business as it is to start a massive business and arguably even more challenging in a small business with the pain of pushing that along versus the excitement of a, a fast growth, large scale business. What would your advice be to a student that doesn't go to Stanford or Harvard or, um, you know, a top school trying to build a network and get involved in different communities? It's, it's really around what is, you know, what do you know? Uh, this is the zero to one book. Peter Thiel, what do you know that others don't? What is this unconventional thought in your mind? What's keeping you awake at night that is a problem that you know needs to be solved and really dedicating your life to it and, and going all in? And then finding those people, you know, when when you come across people that are extremely talented, you know, and this is school agnostic, university agnostic, um, we have them, you know, they're at every college and every university. There's those extremely bright, unconventional thinkers. Find those people and work with them and help them build something great. And if you were to start a company today, or what companies do you want to see started today? Well, Founders Fund, we invest in people versus ideas. And so found this is before my time again, but our, in our first fund, we invested in Mark Zuckerberg, you know, not Facebook and fund two, Elon Musk, not SpaceX, fund three. Brian, Nate, and Joe, Fund 4, this team at Stemcentrics, Cancer Therapeutics. So we're looking for extremely talented people. I am seeing a lot of talent migrating, like kind of moving into areas like the crypto space is very exciting. If you just play back the clock on the internet revolution and say 93 or 94, are we at the early stages of a similar revolution with cryptocurrencies and these protocols? 
Another area is synthetic biology. We're investors in a company called Bolt Threads, which the first product is creating actual spider silk in a in a lab and now at mass scale. I think these are just two exciting areas. We also, with our Pathfinder, our angel fund, funded a team called Escher Reality which is kind of a cross-platform AR toolkit. And that is uh, an ex- exciting opportunity where every consumer, you know, there are many billion consumers with a handset, with a, a AR-compatible phone in their hands. They don't need a headset or anything else. So these are just three segments that I see a lot of bright talent moving towards. But again, in the case of Escher Reality, invested in Ross and Diana. And yes, the founders' names are Diana and Ross. And in both threads, it was Dan... Uh, the founder CEO, we invest in people and they usually show us the way of these brand new markets. Love it. And which couple of books or podcasts would you recommend this is showing people should absolutely read or listen to right now? I just haven't had time to read and consume as much media just because I'm so focused on meeting and working with entrepreneurs. But classic Peter's book, Zero to One, is just, it's a really well written. It sounds maybe self-serving, but it is, I think, just the best startup book out there. And the last couple of questions, I know we're running out of time. Um, any big no-nos when people pitch you? I just want people to be authentic. And I mean, I won't kind of give out all our things that we look for, because again, if you're authentic, that's the most you could be. I don't want people to kind of change their style. But again, we're looking for phenomenally talented founders that are doing things that will impact the world on a massive scale. And we're looking those that are really thinking about the future and thinking about building value in the company. So like the age old point of like CEOs that pay themselves high salaries out the gate is always a turnoff. So these things that these are just kind of signals to us that you know the company is thinking less about the future value and, and more about just this near-term look of being a CEO to get it to make it look good on your resume or don't have conviction in the future of one's own business. This has been really great. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Kevin Hartz. Thank you so much again, Kevin, for coming on the show. It was great listening to him give advice on how to build a network, how to get started as a young founder, and insights into the process of scaling, building a large organization like him and his wife did at Eventbrite. Very interesting for founders out there. You can find all these links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. We come out with episodes every Tuesday, so we have guests like Kevin coming on. It's really great. Thank you once again. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next week on Off Record.